You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And turn with me to 1 Samuel 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 11. When I'm done reading, I will state, this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathium, Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohoam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives, the name of The one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penaniah. Penaniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from this city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penaniah his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, Why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, If you will indeed look on my affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went to her and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah, Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah And all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, 
so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah and her husband said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour in the skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord granted, or has granted, me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worships the Lord there. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has had many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now turn with me to Luke 1, verse 46 through 55. Luke 1, 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servants, servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Let's pray. 
Father, I pray now that you would bless the reading and our meditation upon your word. And as we consider the, the stories you tell, God, I pray that we would be changed. We would see what you are like. We would see what you've called us to. We would see on the promises you've made, the promises you fulfilled, and the promises you have guaranteed through the blood of Jesus. Most of all, God, I pray that we would marvel at you, that we would become like this young, barren woman on our face asking you um, to, to keep your promises, asking you to save us from the wicked, asking you to exalt your name on the earth. In your precious and beautiful name, we pray, amen. I want to begin a bit... Um, with an apology, not an apology like I'm sorry, but an apology is an explanation for what we're about to do um, for a really long time. Um, and, and that is we are going to look verse by verse by verse, chapter by chapter um, at the stories that are unfolded for us in First and Second Samuel. I mean, we do this because fundamentally we believe that God has revealed himself, he has spoken to us, he has um, described the world, described us, and described himself and what he intends to do and what he has already done in the world in a book. And for for many, many people that, maybe for some of you in this room, um, that may seem or feel insane to you. That that we would take an ancient book like this one and we would listen to it, not not just um, study it because maybe it's an interesting historical study, but that we would actually attend to the words in this book like our lives dependent on it, because they do. You see, what we believe, what we confess foundationally as Christians, what we believe is first, is that God tells us who we are. He tells us who he is. He tells us what he's doing in the world and how he's called us to live in the world through this book. And so we bring all of ourselves in glad submission to a good God, a happy God, a sovereign God, a merciful God, a holy God. We bring every single part of who we are in glad and joyful submission to trust this book, to trust this book more than our own thoughts, to trust this book more than our own emotions, to trust this book more than the news, to trust this book above everything else. So we are going to study this book. We're going to study first and second Samuel in particular. But I pray above everything else, one of the things that would mark us as a people living in this time and this place is that every single part of us would be submitted to the words that God actually says. Our understanding of morality, our understanding of beauty, our understanding of truth, our understanding of what is false and what is evil and what is ugly that all of that and how that pervades every single facet of life would be submitted to what God has said to us in the book. And so, today we attend to the first chapter and a half of 1 Samuel. I mean, as we do so, it's important that we keep in mind the condition that Israel finds itself in um, as we turn to 1 Samuel. We talked about this a bit last week, so I'm not going to spend extended time on it, but what you need to understand is that Israel finds itself um, at the bottom of a ditch, a, a ditch um, um, of, of deep unfaithfulness. 
Um, a, ditch, a ditch of unfaithfulness that now is under the, the chastising hand of God as he has brought judgment upon judgment upon judgment against his people. Um, we talked last week about how the end of Judges and the beginning of 1 Samuel overlap. Um, it's been fascinating to consider that um, Eli, Samuel, and Samson would have all been, um, would have all been not peers, but they would have been in, in existence kind of doing their thing around the same period of time. Um, and at the end of the book of Judges, what we find is this blanket declaration about the nature of Israel. Um, and the, the, the statement was, everyone, there, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Here is a people who have been rescued by God, a, a people who, um, to whom God has spoken in his kindness and his love for them, um, has given them his law. A God who had given them even a structure for how their society should function um, uh, that that would be a blessing to them, that they might be a blessing to the nations of the earth. Um, Here's a God um, who who had spoken, who had made known to them his love, his character, his holiness, had revealed to them the horror of his judgments and the glory of his covenant blessings, had shown to them the way of mercy and grace. That he is a God who forgives sins and showers blessings upon thousands of generations. And they as a people, as a whole, had utterly rejected the word of God. They did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone, autonomous, independent of God's words, independent of God's judgments, independent of God's law, and therefore independent of God's mercy. Maybe. That's where things begin in 1 Samuel. So beginning there with that background, with that context, um, and I want to add uh, one other piece of that context, that, that God actually in, in, in great mercy to them had allowed, had raised up the Philistines to chastise them, to oppress them, um, to be a means of judgment against them in, in, uh, in the hopes that, and actually it, it produced this fruit um, repeatedly in the book of Judges, that they would turn back to the Lord and cry out to him. And so the Philistines were given power, they, they would come in, they would conquer um, certain parts of Israel, certain tribes, certain towns, certain villages, um, they would tax them, they would, um, they, they would beat them, they would uh, um, restrict them from having swords and keep the swords from them. Um, uh, they, they would do this again and again and again, and then um, the people of Israel would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge, um, a judge who would then fight on their behalf and conquer their enemies and free them, at least for a time, from the oppressive power of the Philistines. Then Israel would turn to worship idols, turn against and, and away from God's law, um, and then the Philistines would show up again. And this repeated over and over and over, and we're going to see the end of that cycle kind of unfold here in First. Samuel. And so you have barrenness, you have a people um, that, that are not bearing the fruit that God had told them to bear, that God had commissioned them to bear, to bear that God through his law and through his kindness to them um, had, had created that they would bear in the world. We also have um, a people derided and mocked and belittled um, by the Philistines. And so in that context, Samuel zeroes in, if you can imagine it as a movie scene, he, you, you have this grand sweeping historical context um, dealing with this whole people group. 
And then the camera zooms in from looking at the history of this entire nation and zooms into one particular family. And, and, and then beyond just this single family, it zooms in on one particular woman. Um, this man had two wives. And one of these wives was named Hannah. And Hannah had no children. Hannah is barren. But Hannah is beloved by her husband. She cannot bear children. She has no children but she's deeply loved by her husband such that he provides for her double when they come into the presence of the Lord to worship him and to offer their sacrifices. And they go up each year, year after year after year from their city to the city of Shiloh to the tabernacle that was there at Shiloh. Um, This is how worship worked. You went to a physical tent Um, At that time, you offered your sacrifices before the Lord. Um, You would offer your prayers there before the Lord. Um, That would all be facilitated by priests, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests of the Lord. They were the sons of Eli. So they would go up and they would bring their sacrifices. They would bring their offerings. They would go then and celebrate um, as you should this afternoon after we leave here in worship. They would celebrate with food, with drink. I think this is where the tradition at least in our house, of eating um, fried chicken and drinking a stout beer every Sunday afternoon comes from. Um, You worship before the Lord, and then you go and you eat and you drink. Um, They've gone and they've done that, and then we zoom in upon that kind of repeated pattern that happened year after year after year. Um, Hannah, sad. Hannah actually mocked and derided um, by the other wife. Um, And then we, we, we zoom in on one particular trip to Shiloh, one particular trip to worship before the presence of the Lord, one particular trip again where Hannah is mocked, derided as the unfruitful one, as the one who can't bear her husband a child. What must be wrong with you? After eating and drinking, we find Hannah back at the tabernacle on her face before the Lord, Pleading with God. I'm going to look more closely at what she was pleading for in a minute. But first, you'll notice verse 12 as she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. And Hannah was speaking in her heart, and only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli, like the chief priest, the one who represents the Lord at the place where people are come to come and pray before the Lord, assumes that this woman who's come to the house of the Lord to pray, which is what everyone's supposed to do, assumes that she's drunk. I think this is a clue as to how dark things were. Um, We're going to find out next week and see how corrupt actually worship at the tabernacle had become um, through Eli's sons. But what we can at least note here is that Eli observes a woman who comes to the place of prayer to pray and assumes she must be a drunken woman. Eli chastises her, tells her to quit being drunk. 
Then Hannah answers him and says, no, I'm a troubled woman. I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I haven't drunk wine. I haven't had any whiskey. Um, I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't think of me as a worthless woman. Speaking out of great anxiety, great pain, vexation. As she prays, as she says this then to, to Eli, Eli promises her, the Lord's going to answer your prayer. The rest of the text kind of unfolds the story for then having Samuel, waiting until Samuel is weaned, then bringing Samuel to the house of the Lord, back to Eli, back to the place of prayer. Um, and as she says, lending him to the Lord, giving him um, that he would always, all of his days, the whole, court, the whole orientation of his life would be to honor, to minister, to worship, to pray before the Lord, to be the Lord's servant, his minister in his presence there at the tabernacle. And then the text offers us Hannah's song, her prayer. So that's the story as it unfolds here. Now, what you might be tempted to do is hear in this story merely um, the story of a woman who was barren, who wanted a child. And so she prays that God would give her a child. And so she receives a child. And then she hands the child over to the tabernacle to be a minister before the Lord. Um, To see... Only the story about a woman who wanted children and couldn't have children, and then suddenly God in his kindness gives her a child. To see it only that way is to miss um, foundationally what, what God is giving us in the book of Samuel. There are all kinds of clues in this text I want to point out to you that that tell us that this story is actually about something much, much larger um, than, than simply Hannah and her desire for children. But don't make it about anything less than that either. Here is a woman pleading with God, bringing her pain, her own shame into the presence of God and asking for him to bless her. But this story is about something much, much larger. Hannah actually is for us a picture of um, faithful Israel. The nation is in darkness. The nation is in rebellion against God. Um, The nation has rejected the law of God. The nation is not bearing the fruit um, that it was meant to produce. The nation itself is barren. The nation itself finds itself um, not as a fruitful vineyard, not as a place producing fruit that would bless the nations, fruit that would honor her husband and her master. Um, She is, in fact, barren. And so even in the midst of Israel, um, as there was a small remnant, even maybe just this family, but perhaps even beyond this family, um, since the tabernacle, the, um, the priest and Eli's family is, we're going to see next week, is completely unfaithful. Um, we, we find here at least one family, one faithful family holding on to the promises of God, um, gathering year after year faithfully in the presence of God to worship him, to, to, to love him, to call upon him, to bring offerings before him. And here is a beloved wife, loved by her husband, and yet not bearing fruit. And here is Israel, 
showing up again and again, a small remnant within this um, rebellious nation, showing up again and again to worship in the presence of God, to plead with him to keep his promises, to plead with him to put down the wicked and raise up the righteous, to turn the world upside down and see his name established and loved uh, uh, among God's people again, showing up again and again in the face of Philistine oppression, the enemies of God, the pagans who, who, who hate God and worship their own gods, um, uh, ruling over Israel in the midst of it. Here's one faithful family. One faithful woman, barren, fruitless, coming and showing up again and again. Asking God to keep his promises. See, this isn't just a story about one woman and one family. It's not just the story of the arrival of some sort of hero figure named Samuel. It is, in fact, the story of Israel itself. We see this, if you'll look more closely with me at Hannah's prayer. Look at chapter 2. She's not just talking about herself. Like the language here is about something much, much larger than just her womb. About something much, much larger than just her standing in comparison to um, her, the, the other wife in the family. What she's praying about is, is actually tectonic. It's huge. It's about the movement of nations and the power of God. It's about rulers and kings and authorities. It's about the name of God himself. It is about the oppressed being raised up, um, the poor um, overcoming the wicked. It is about the righteousness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, the power of God to put down evil and establish righteousness and goodness and beauty forever and ever and ever. She's not just praying about having a child. She is Israel, faithful Israel, kneeling perhaps by herself in the presence of God and asking for the coming of God's salvation. She prays that God would lift up the barren, cause them to bear fruit, that God would reverse the fortunes of the world, that God would guard the path of the faithful. She prays that God would cut off the wicked, that God would break his adversaries into pieces, that God would thunder and judge the world. And then last and interesting, I want you to notice this, there in verse 10, she prays that God would raise up and strengthen his king. Now that's interesting for one main reason, is that Israel has no king. At this point, she's never had a king. She doesn't have a king yet, and, and yet here, Hannah pleads with God that he would strengthen his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, which in Hebrew is the exact same word for his Christ, his Messiah. Do you see this? Here is barren darkness. 
Here is fruitlessness. Here is the enemies of God seeming to triumph over and over and over again over his people. And here on her face in the presence of God, a woman prays thousands of years before it comes to pass that God would raise up his king, his Messiah, his Christ. See, what we're actually witnessing in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 is not merely a story about a woman who wanted a child and couldn't have one. What we're actually witnessing in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 is the beginning of the establishment, the the, the beginning ripples of what will grow into the tidal wave that will sweep the whole world and fill all of the nations with the worship of Yahweh. What we're seeing in these first two chapters in the the faithful prayers of a barren woman pleading with God to give give her a child is the, um, the, the faint whispers that that will grow into a song that fills every nation on earth such that all peoples will bow the knee to King Jesus, will be redeemed by King Jesus, that all the nations of the earth will belong to King Jesus. Oh, if you can hear the faint prayers of this woman presumed to be drunk, you will hear the beginnings of the coming of the kingdom of God. That's what 1 Samuel 1 and 2 is about. I want to make a few observations about things implicit and explicit in this text about the nature of the world. First, prayer is how God changes the world. We looked at a handful of weeks ago in Ephesians 6, putting on the full armor of God. And so we talked about a sword and we talked about the, um, the, 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 the necessary understanding of the, the hostility of Um, the the time and the age that God has called us to live in the midst of, um, what what anchors that entire text is a call to pray. That foundational to to all of the faithful witness of the Christian church, um, foundational to um, uh, the unraveling, I pray, the unraveling, continuing unraveling of secularism, um, uh, the um, foundational to seeing our neighbors come to know Jesus and to love his word above all things, foundational um, to our faithfulness in raising children who would love and worship God, foundational to marriages um, that would be anchored in the truth of God is a people who will humbly, even in the face of barrenness, even in the face of being absolutely undone by the strength of our enemies, is a people who will fall on their face and plead with God to keep his promises. Faithfulness, it it has a number of different expressions, a number of ways in which we're called to obey God and pursue God and pursue the purposes of God on the earth. That foundational must to it all must be a people on their face asking God to answer our prayers who understand how powerless we are 
to do anything on our own that matters. How apart from God's mercy and grace, how powerless you and I are to make our children born again. To make our neighbors see what is true and beautiful and good and delight in it. Oh, that we would be a people on our face pleading with God for the sake of his name to keep his promises. Do not think that because you have um, clear theology, because you have um, a a great kind of perception of how um, the the world around us is structured and ordered and and, and all the kind of philosophical thoughts and movements that are taking place around us, because you think you have the right politics, um, uh, because uh, because you have all the right activities, or you calendar your life in exactly the right way, or you uh, make sure that you're disciplined enough to kind of check all the right boxes with your family, do not think that that is enough. I love theology. I love thinking clearly about the world and understanding it. Um, But if I think for a moment that that is adequate... I've minimized the purposes of God and my understanding of my own strength. And I've maximized, vastly overrated my own strength. Prayer is where all of this begins. This this unfolding of this story that's frankly shocking. As what appears to be chaos and darkness and depravity and sin in the midst of all of it, what you find is a God who is doing something stunning. And it begins with a woman, a faithful woman, gathering in the presence of God with her family to worship and to persevere in prayer, asking God to keep his promises. Prayer is how God changes the world. Second, children how God changes the world. I, I, I think in our day and age, we've been trained to see children as kind of a further accessory to, uh, um, to kind of further your own ideal life, which quickly goes away when you realize you don't sleep with children. We, we've been trained to think that like children should be easy, that, that raising children is kind of like this just maybe just the thing you're supposed to do, and it's you, you find it personally and emotionally satisfying and fulfilling. But but here's the reality is the beginning of the end of history, which is recorded for us in First Samuel 1 and 2. Um, it starts as this mother gives herself to praying for a child. But we tend to think of the work of God primarily in terms of our window of time and our life. We are so short-sighted. We think that, that um, maybe God would transform everything through my life, through my work, through, through my agency. And so we, we overemphasize and overthink what we can accomplish in our career, what we can accomplish through our own evangelism, what we can accomplish through our own um, participation in churches, and, and whatever the, the, the thing might be. And we tend to grossly underestimate how much God intends to do, not through you, through your children. And so husbands, fathers, do not 
Do not overvalue what happens Monday through Friday in your workplace and undervalue the vital importance of raising eternal souls who will either honor and glorify God forever and ever and ever or who will hate him. Mothers, do not minimize the, the gravity the weight, the glory of picking up those Cheerios when they throw them on the ground again, of patience, seemingly endless patience, to teach, to train, to discipline, to hug, to read the story one more stinking time, to, to, um, to sing the songs, to read the scriptures, to, um, to attend to the hurt knees. Do not underestimate the eternal value of raising children to fear and know and love and treasure Christ, to cling to his word. We read in 1 Samuel 1 and 2 the beginning of the end of all history. Coming of the reign of God and the mercy of God. As John describes it in Revelation, the coming of light that will fill the nations. Um, As the prophets describe it, a a day coming in which the knowledge of the glory of God will, um, uh, will, will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea that everything will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And it begins here with a woman praying for a child. Children is how God changes the world. Prayer is how God changes the world. The other thing in this story, there are two wives here. One is a faithful wife and one is a mocking wife. What should we expect in this age is that God's faithful wife will often be derided, will often be misunderstood, assumed to be drunk, and be mocked. I mean, Hannah is, Hannah is is every year when they go to the presence of the Lord, and and how this works is like the number of children you have was, was Um, became like everything else that we tend to do as humans. We turn everything into a measuring stick about how righteous we are, how blessed by God we are um, over against everybody else. And and, and here in this family, Hannah wasn't blessed. And so they would go into the house of the Lord and the other wife begins to mock her and belittle her because she doesn't have enough kids. And so she's mocked by the other wife. Second, she faithfully on her face in the presence of God pleading with him to keep his promises. It's assumed that she's drunk. And she lives in a time and an age in which the Philistines oppressed them, hated them, often would kill them, would tax them through the roof. And I think it's important to see that 
If we are to be the faithful wife of Yahweh, our God, if we are in his presence pleading with him that he would keep his promises and take us as a church, take us as the people of God living in this city, in this country, in this moment, and take us from barrenness to fruitfulness, um, you must expect to be derided, misunderstood, and for some people to think you're just crazy, maybe drunk. And last, God loves to use the weak, the barren, the barren who are faithful to show his glorious power. Um, One of the reoccurring themes, it just happens over and over and over again, is we're going to see men and women in their weakness. We're going to see them in their brokenness. And yet, again and again, God steps in, God acts. You see, God has structured history. He structured everything such that he wields his power in the midst of weakness because he wants to share his glory with no one. He steps in in David's moments of of brokenness and weakness and rebellion when his family is collapsing and he steps in and vindicates his name, glorifies himself. He acts mightily through a a, a confused and insecure man named Saul and and, and conquers the enemies of God. In fact, we're going to see some, I mean, my favorite story that we're going to come across um, is when the Philistines capture the ark. It's actually, it's coming just a few weeks, so we're going to get there. Um, And and God doesn't send Israel to conquer the Philistines. He just says, you guys can't handle it. You're too weak right now. I'll go. And then Israel, God literally goes on tour throughout Philistia, um, um, just conquering city after city after city, destroying their gods. It's a blast. It's like a concert tour where God says, hey, I'm going to let Israel be defeated because they're too weak, and I'm just going to go and take care of this by myself. I mean, this is the God we worship. And it's the heart of the gospel itself is that God overcomes wickedness. God conquers the nations. God exalts his own name. God cuts the the unrighteous and the rebellious um, out from under at their knees. And how does he do it? He doesn't do it through our strength. He doesn't do it through our might. He does it um, as he answers the faithful prayers and worship. The people who cling to the promises of God, who love his word, and who just keep showing up week after week to worship him in his presence. So God begins in 1 Samuel to absolutely overcome darkness, to establish his king his Messiah's throne that will endure forever and ever and ever. He begins to build a temple that will one day fill the whole earth. He begins to establish a kingdom that will know no end. And he begins it as his people, typified in this woman named Hannah. Barren, powerless, seemingly without the blessing of God falls on her face and asks that God would come and vindicate his name. Let's pray and prepare for communion.